wanted to uh, raise my anxiety level to get my blood pressure up, uh, to get my heart rate up, it doesn't take that much. All you need to do is get me in my car driving, and I look up in the rearview mirror, and in the rearview mirror, I see a law enforcement officer. I mean, yeah, you guys are chuckling because you, you, you know what I'm feeling, right? I just like suddenly you start trying to sit up straight, and it's like, okay, my, my hands are at 10 and 2, officer, or is it nine and three now, or is it 10 and two, nine and three? What do I do? I'm, I'm constantly going through my mind, like all the things that I tried to remember back in driver's ed, like, like what's the following distance? Am I doing the right following distance? Like how soon before a corner am I supposed to turn on my blinker? I'm just getting nervous inside. I'm thinking, don't touch your phone. Don't touch your phone. Don't touch your phone. You can't touch your phone. All those things are going through me. And then I just start thinking, uh, I just want to pull off of this road. I just want to pull off this road, but don't look guilty when you're doing it, because then he might follow you. Don't look guilty. You're probably thinking, I think my pastor's a little bit crazy and, and maybe has a little bit of a guilty conscience. We might need to look into that a little bit. Do you ever feel like that when somebody's following you? A little bit crazy. And here's what I think is so crazy about that. As I, as I try to imagine, like, what is it that that officer back there is thinking? I mean, is, is he really there driving behind me thinking, oh, I'm going to bust you. I'm just going to bust you. Do something wrong, bald man. I am going to so bust you. I mean, is that what's going on in his heart or her heart and mind? What am I afraid of? And here's what makes me know that I'm even more crazy than you might think already is that I know lots of law enforcement officers. A lot of them sit in our seats on a weekend I know why they do what they do. I've heard them talk about it. They're not out there looking for the first opportunity to bust somebody. What they want to do is they want to create safety. They want to provide a safe environment for me and for everybody. And they're even willing to put themselves in harm's way. Now, if I get that in my mind and I'm thinking about an officer that is driving behind me, it doesn't make me want to pull off and drive away from me. It makes me want to get him or her out of the car and give him a hug and say, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing for me. Amen. Wow, we've got a clap in the 11. We do love, we love our law enforcement officers. Here's what I want you to think about. How you view a law enforcement officer determines how you're going to relate to them. 
How you view them is gonna determine how you relate to them. Now, here's the jump that I want you to make. I want you to move your mind from law enforcement and I want you to move your mind to God. How you view God will determine how you relate to him. And even when you think about the commands of God, how you think about the commands of God, what God tells us to do or not to do will determine how you relate to the commands of God. Not only how you relate to him, but how you relate to his commands. I wanted to just set that in your mind as we set the table for what we're gonna talk about here at the beginning of chapter Mark. We're in the fourth week of our series that we're calling Enough. And there's all these interactions that Jesus is having where he wants people to know that he is enough. And and if you've been paying attention over this first handful of interactions that Brian and I have been teaching about, you realize that there's an antagonist in every one of these stories, the religious leaders. There's these controversies that are brewing between Jesus and the religious leaders. The first time that I preached, we talked about Jesus that healed the paralytic man. And because Jesus said, son, my sins are forgiven, they accused him of breaking the rules. That's blaspheming. Only God can do that. Jesus, you're breaking the rules. Brian talked about Jesus meeting with sinners, people that were outcast, marginalized in the culture. And the Pharisees were looking at that saying, you, as trying to be a clean person, Jesus, you're hanging out with people that are unclean. And if you're gonna do that, the unclean people are gonna make you unclean. Jesus, you're breaking the rules. And today we get a couple more opportunities where the religious leaders are chasing after Jesus, looking for him to do something wrong, looking for him to break the rules. They're like the law enforcement officers. And they want nothing more than to pull up behind Jesus and turn on the cherries and berries and just say, we're pulling you over, Jesus. You are breaking the rules. Just think about that for just a minute. These are are religious leaders, but they're looking into the face of God himself, God in the flesh, and telling him, you're not following God's rules correctly. How prideful is that? And how ironic is that? But they completely missed it. But when I realize that, it makes me think, I can miss it too. And so can you. Can we have a wrong view of God's commands and a wrong view of God that would cause us to totally miss the heart of God? Jesus wants us to understand how we are to view the law. And when we look at these couple of stories today, we're gonna look at the heart of Jesus. What is it that was in his heart as he saw people that weren't accurately handling the commands of God. And we're gonna look at what was in the heart of the religious people, but also the irreligious people. But probably most important for all of us here, we gotta look at our own heart. What's happening in our heart as it relates to religiosity and the commands of God? Mark chapter two, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Here's Jesus' response. He answered, have you never read what David did when he 
and the high priest, he, when he and, the, he and his companions were hungry and in need, in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said this. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This controversy takes place obviously on the Sabbath and remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy was the fourth commandment given to Moses. And it just simply meant this, stop working. The word Sabbath actually has in its meaning to cease. Cease working, cease striving. Take time, relax, reflect, remember things that matter. Take one day off in seven. But there were these religious leaders, the Pharisees. And I've got to admit that sometimes the Pharisees, they, they get a super bad rap because they spent so much of their time confronting Jesus. It's like they're the, the enemy in the New Testament. But we've got to understand maybe where was their heart in the things that they were doing to try to keep people obeying the law. They had watched over the history of Israel where there would be these times of great obedience to the commands of God and great blessing from God. But there were also these times when people turned away from God and just did things in their own way. And there was destruction that came upon the nation of Israel. So they looked at this cycle and they said, we've got to figure out how is it that we keep people obeying the law of God, keep their hearts engaged with the law of God. But here's what they did. If this was the law of God, the do's and the don'ts, they said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna build a fence around the law of God so that we don't even come close in any way to breaking it. So they made rules outside of even the laws of God to keep them, keep people from breaking the laws of God. They said, well, if that gets us that close, well, maybe we should make some more rules and some more regulations that would keep us from even coming closer to disobeying the law of God. So they began to heap up stacks and stacks of rules and regulations. They just continued to fence things around the law. And that's what they had done with the Sabbath. The Pharisees had come up with actually 39 different activities with lots of explanation and what constitutes all of those activities that people could not do on the Sabbath. And one of those is reaping. And so the disciples are going along and they're just picking a few heads of grain from the wheat. And the Pharisees are saying, out of bounds, out of bounds. But Jesus says, it's not out of bounds. Was Jesus not willing to pay attention to the commands of God? If you know much about Judaism, even observant Jews today, they try to do the exact same things. They try to keep the law of Moses. But not only the law of Moses, they have the Talmud and the Mishnah, the Jewish commentary on those laws, other regulations that they try to keep. And I've loved it over the last handful of years, probably the last decade. I've had a front row seat to trying to understand uh, Jewish rabbis. I've got a Jewish rabbi that lives right across the street from me, and he and his wife have been so gracious to their Gentile 
pastor and all of his questions over the years. Our, our first interaction, uh, it couldn't have probably got off to a more awkward start. They were, they were moving into their house. And you know when you're moving into a house, uh, I always just think it's like a bummer. You have to stop and go eat. And, and it, I thought maybe it would just be nice if we got some food for them and gave them to eat. So I go out and I get pizza, pepperoni, sausage. Yeah, you that are laughing, no, not kosher at all, full of pork. So I just you know, go up on his steps and it's like, hey, we just got you some dinner. And he's like, oh, no, we're, we're fine. Really, we're fine. No, 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 have it. You know, I'm just trying to shove it through the door at him. And I mean, probably he can't even touch the box, much less bring that box into his home. We've had great laughs about that years later. But I've got to understand from him how they think about the Sabbath and how they create things to make sure that they keep the Sabbath holy. When we went over, one time they invited us to come over for what they call a Shabbat, which is the meal that they eat on Friday uh, before sundown that welcomes the Sabbath into their home. And we got a chance, my wife and I got a chance to do this. And Carmen and I absolutely loved it. I was fascinated by everything that we did, but I was always doing things that would like kind of put my foot in my mouth because I probably knew just enough about Jewish tradition to get myself killed. There was one time we were reading the, the prayer book and it was like in Hebrew and there was some stuff that was transliterated into English and I was trying to follow along as, as best I could. But then suddenly I saw a word that I recognized and it was one of the names of God. And so I'm like, oh, I recognize that word. It's, and I said it. And he kind of got this raw smile on his face. And he said, we don't say the name. And some of you might know that because one of the commandments is do not take the Lord's name in vain, that they don't refer to God with some of the names that we do, like Yahweh or Adonai. They don't say that. They refer to him as Hashem, which simply means the name. They don't want to even come close in any way to do anything that might dishonor the name of God. So they just simply don't say it. So many things that they try to do. But it has been so awesome to get to know and to understand. They have been so gracious with us to help us understand the rules, even around the rules. Jesus did not have religious leaders following him around that were as gracious as my neighbors. So we run into this second incident that takes place on another Sabbath day. Mark chapter three, starting in verse one. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Isn't that cunning? They just... They know what Jesus is up to, and so they're falling around, and they anticipate that he's going to heal this man. So Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Jesus knows what they're thinking. And then Jesus asked them a great question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. 
Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I want to go back and read verse 5 because it, it shows the heart of Jesus when he sees that there are people that are mishandling the commands of God, the law of God, that are distorting the view of God. Verse 5, it says, he looked at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. The English language just doesn't capture the Greek and what it's saying was happening in Jesus. He was boiling over. But why? It just doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, if obedience to the law of God is important, and it was, wouldn't these be Jesus's people? They're doing everything they can to make sure that everybody is obeying the law. Wouldn't they be his people, his posse, doing his work for him? Why is Jesus so angry? He was angry because how they viewed the law was distorting people's view of God and what they thought was true of God. You see, what the Sabbath was meant for was it was to be a place of rest. It was to be a place of restoration, a place for people to be replenished. That word just simply means cease. Cease striving. Cease working. But what they have done is they used the restrictions and the rules that they had made to undermine, to undermine the absolute purpose of the Sabbath. That's why Jesus was trying to help them understand the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus wanted them to understand God's heart with the Sabbath is that it would be a gift to you because they would know God's heart is that he wants me to thrive. He wants me to flourish. And he's saying, this is what you need. You need to cease Cease striving physically and emotionally. Put your mind and your heart on God and the things that are true. This was a gift, not a burden. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were piling up these regulations that made this an incredible burden. And this sense that it wasn't something that people felt like this was God did this for me. It was that God wanted something from me, an incredible burden all because of religion, all because of religion. And the way that they were thinking about the law of God distorted people's view of God. And I believe this is why Jesus was so angry because he was causing people to believe a lie about God, a lie as old as the beginning itself. If we go back to the very beginning, the book of Genesis chapter three, to think about the commands of God, there was just God Two people and one command. It was really simple. God just said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, just obey that. Why? He doesn't give a great explanation why, but he says that the consequence is that you will die. You will be not physically die, but you'll spiritually die. You'll be spiritually separated from me. That was the command of God. But what he wanted them to do was obey simply because you love me and you trust me. And you really do believe that the reason I give you any command is that I wanna protect you and I wanna provide something for you. You're gonna love and you're gonna trust me because you believe that I'm wise and I'm good and I'm helpful. But the serpent shows up and tells a lie to try to distort 
to try to distort in the minds of people an accurate view of God. He said, you can't trust God. He doesn't want you to eat of that because when you are made wise to the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like him. You can't trust him. He's holding out on you. You're gonna miss out if you follow his commands. That was the lie of the serpent. And here's what's tragic for us is that many of us, and I think all of us actually, in some way, we believe the lie of the servant. We don't always believe that God's commands, the things that he asks us to do and not do, come from a heart that wants to bless us. We see them as a burden and not a blessing, and so we try anyway to get around him because we don't trust the heart and the character of God. And here's what I believe is true. This is what would be true if we really did trust the heart of God. We would look at the things that God asked us to do, and even if it didn't always make 100% sense to us, we would do it because we know God's heart, and we would say, obedience to him is always in my best interest. But the evil one wants to twist and to lie. He wants us to believe that God isn't good, that somehow he's, he's kind of a tyrannical God and he, he wants to just get us under his thumb. Wants to minimize who we are. He wants to limit us. He wants to be a cosmic killjoy. And that's what Jesus was seeing was happening around this one law around the Sabbath because he understood that the Sabbath was about restoring things that were diminished. It was about repairing things that are broken. And so healing a man's shriveled hand on the Sabbath, is there anything more Sabbath-like than that, than to restore a man's hand? The man's hand was shriveled. That was a problem. But religious people's hearts were shriveled and their eyes were shriveled. They weren't seeing God for who he really was. They were being territorial, judgmental, and self-obsessed. Why? Religion. They were following religion, following rules, following commands, more than following the heart of God. And I'll be honest, we, we can look back at this story from 2,000 years ago and just be like, man, those Pharisees, they just don't get it. All those religious people. Can I tell you that religiosity, it is alive and well, in 21st century Bozeman. And I would say religiosity, it can be alive and well right around here in Journey Church. I started to, to think about some of my experiences over my, my time as a pastor, and it's just like so many of them were coming to my mind, but a couple of them I just wanted to share with you that I think kind of tips the hand that this exists. This exists in us, all of us. Some of you remember the name Chris Townley. He was a student ministry pastor around here for uh, a long, long time. He was served as our teaching pastor. If you know Chris, you know that this is a man that loves Jesus and he is a great communicator, a great preacher of God's word. But early on in Chris's life and ministry, if you, if you knew Chris, or if you ever ran into him, he just kind of had this look. And part of his look was that he always had almost always, I should say, had a Boston Red Sox hat on. Big fan of the Boston Red Sox. Always had his Boston Red Sox flat bill on. Well, one of the first times that Chris comes to preach at Journey, stand on the stage, he wears his Boston flat bill. 
People lost it. There were people that were so upset that we would let anybody stand in front of people with a hat on and preach the word of God. I kid you not, people left our church over that. I'm just thinking, did you hear his message? Did you hear how powerful it was? All you saw was a Boston Red Sox Flatville. I mean, I can see a Yankee fan being upset about that, but (laughs) come on. Really? There was another time I was thinking, I'm just thinking about the things that have happened from the stage because that often has been part of my world. We had a guest preacher one time preached an amazing message. I still remember the message to this day. But during his message, he said, don't be a turd. (laughs) There was someone in our church that just said, you desecrated the pulpit. He demanded, I mean, this was someone that was influential and extremely generous to to a young church. But he said, I demand a public apology for saying the word turd. I thought, really? That's what you heard in all of the things that were shared in the, you heard turd. And that was where you're gonna point the finger. And I think we can sit, we can, I can talk about that and just be like, come on, people. So narrow, so judgmental. You just don't get it. And maybe some of you are thinking that in your mind too, like, man, we don't need those people in our church. But you know what? As soon as you say that in your heart, you know what? You are just like them. You just have a different boundary marker for what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, who's in, who's out. All of us have that kind of religiosity in us. And we all need to try to see it. But here's the thing. It is so hard to see in ourselves. Religious people, like all of us in this room, we all have some of them, we're like vampires. It's like we look in a mirror and we just can't see ourselves. We can't see the religiosity. Oh, but we can see it in everybody else. And we'll go after their blood, but we don't see it in us. Friends, we have to see it in us. There's a line in this that last story that it might just kind of seem a little bit like a, a throwaway line that was just kind of completing Mark's story. But I think it's incredibly important because Jesus makes it clear and Mark helps us see that it's not just religious people that hated the message of Jesus. It was the irreligious as well. Mark 3, 6, the last verse I read, this is a key sentence because it's a key message of the New Testament. It says, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, how they might kill Jesus. Now, the Herodians, they were just simply a people of that time that followed and looked up to Herod. Now, if you remember any of the stories in the New Testament about Herod, he is one of the meanest, nastiest, immoral kings that there ever was. And the way that it worked in the Roman Empire is when they would conquer a city, conquer a country, a culture, they would set up rulers over those people. That's what they had done. Herod was an overseer, was a king over the Jewish people. But with the Herods 
came their philosophies, oftentimes Greek philosophies, Greek approach to culture, Greek philosophy, Greek approach to sex and the body, incredible immorality, the Greek approach to truth. So it was a conquered people. This is where, this was the context where the Pharisees rose up because they were just being bombarded in their life from this pagan and immoral culture and they wanted to keep their hearts pure for God. And so they made these rules. It seems like a great thing, but you see what's happening here? It's the Pharisees, the religious conservatives and the immoral people. They hated each other. They were always at odds with each other, but they were able to unite under one thing. We hate the message of Jesus. We hate his message. And you know why they hated his message? Because he said the same thing to everybody. If you were immoral, if you were far from God, he would say, your heart is sick. Your heart is sick with sin. And you need a doctor. And I'm enough. I can heal you. And to those that were sick, with self-righteousness and self-justification, those who thought they could earn their way to God. He said, you're sick and I can help you. I can be your doctor, religious or irreligious. People that espoused to moralism and those that espoused to moral relativism, all of them, Jesus' message was the same. You all, you all need a doctor and I'm the doctor for you. So where are you? If there's a spectrum out there, where are you? How do you relate to the commands of God? How do you think about those things? I believe this. If we're going to be able to try to shed the religiosity that exists in every one of us, there's two things at least that we're going to need to do. One is that we need to believe that the commands of God are for us, that God really does he wants to protect you and he wants to provide something for you. And even if you don't understand all of it, you're willing to say, Jesus, I will bow my knee to you because I trust you. And the second thing that we need to do is we need to ask better questions about the commands of God than the religious leaders did. They, they would constantly ask the question like, is this a sin? Is this the line? And I know this from working with people over my life. When people are asking, is this a sin? It's not because they want to stay away from it. Most of the time, it's because they want to get up as close to that as they possibly can without stepping over into it. We need to ask better questions than, is this a sin? There is a better question. I'm going to share it with you. And I just need to say up front, I stole this question from Andy Stanley in his book, Better Decisions and Fewer Regrets. But this is a question that brings inescapable clarity to just about every moral, ethical, relational question that you're ever going to bump into in your life. And this question, it gets to the very heart of the new covenant commands that Jesus gives us in the New Testament of the Bible. I believe that this question needs to be our standard in terms of how we evaluate our behavior, how we evaluate our conversations, how we evaluate our attitudes in everything that we do. And the question is this, what does love require of me? What does love 
require of me? Friends, I believe that this question needs to inform how we date, how we parent, how we lead, how we work. This question for all of us needs to form the boundaries for everything that we say and do in every role that we have in our lives. And my role as a husband, my role as a father, my role as a pastor, my role as a friend, my role as a neighbor. We need to ask the question, what does love require of me? Because this question, it gives voice and it gives clarity to so many things beyond what even the New Testament ever even addresses in terms of commands. Do you understand what I'm saying? This question, it closes the loopholes in our lives. If you wanna look for loopholes, don't start asking this question. This exposes the hypocrisy in our life. That's what makes this such a powerful question to change our lives. I just wanna say no more asking the question, but what does the Bible really say about this being right or wrong? Ask yourself the question, what does love require of me? Because this question is simple, but man, it does not lower the bar of the commands of God. It actually raises the bar significantly. But it asks a question about love. And Jesus would tell us that we've got to love on at least two levels. And this probably won't surprise you. One is that there's got to be love for Jesus. This is what he says in John 14, 15. If you love me, if you love me, and we, we, we just sang and we're singing about loving Jesus. He's just saying, if you love me, if that's true, then do this. Keep my commands. But what, what commands? Jesus, what commands are you talking about? Just earlier, Jesus said this, John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. How are we to do this? We're to love others the way Jesus loved us and the way he loved others. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus gives us a better answer to the question, why would we obey? Why would we submit our lives? Why would we bow our knee to Jesus? Because he is the example of love. And we love him by keeping his commands. And you've just got to understand it as this message of Jesus was, as it begins to permeate the culture at the time, they had so many questions about, are you trying to diminish the law? Are you trying to diminish the commands of God? Jesus never tried to diminish the commands. He actually raised the demand of the commands. That's why when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And when he says fulfill, what he means is I came to accurately interpret the law. And that's in Matthew chapter five, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then he starts into this series of things where he says, you'll recognize this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, raise the bar. Don't even have hate in your heart for another person. What does love require of me? Not just to not murder, but to not even hate. Do not commit adultery. That's what you've heard it said, but I say to you, don't even look at someone with lust in your heart. It's not, even, it's not about a physical act. It's about something that happens in your heart because that's the root of it. Jesus raises the bar. He raises the demands. 
Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you know what? He meant it. Because a handful of chapters later, he is being nailed to a Roman cross. And what does he say to his enemies that are nailing him to a cross? He looks up at the father, to the father and says, father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It'd be so easy to hate your enemy in that moment. But even then, what does love require? It requires compassion. And that's what Jesus gave. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That's the question that'll change our life. That's the question that will shape the boundaries of our life in a more significant way than, is this a sin? What does love require of me? I love it. I have some friends, and when you walk out of their house, this is what you see. You see that question, what does love require of me? Every time they leave their house, right in front of them, that's the question. I was just thinking about all the times that my kids leave the house, and I just say stupid things that they probably don't even listen to. You know, drive safe, make good decisions, don't do anything that'll make Jesus cry. But I honestly, I know that they're probably not listening. And so sometimes Carmen, I'll just say, drive fast, take chances. And it kind of catches their attention. But what if every time you walked out of your house, what if every time you walked into your office, what if every time you walked into your neighborhood, into a social circle, that was the question on your mind? Right here, right now, what does love require of me. When we look at all the commands that we see in the New Testament, they're just an expression of what does this look like? How does this play out in our day-to-day life? But I tell you, friends, this is a question that's going to kill religiosity in us. Because this question, even though it's simple, it is so demanding. And that, friends, is what Jesus calls us to in terms of how we live our life. What would happen in your life? What would happen in your family, your neighborhood, your church, your community? If everyone in this room and everyone that calls Journey Church their home got real serious about this, you said, this is, this is how I'm gonna live my life. This is how I'm gonna decide what I'm gonna do. This is how I'm gonna decide how I live my marriage. This is gonna decide how I spend my time. This is gonna be how I spend my talents. This is gonna be how I spend my money. This is gonna be how I make my plans. What does love require of me? What would happen? I tell you, families would be changed, marriages would be changed, relationships would be changed, and shriveled hands would get healed on the Sabbath. And sometimes love would mean that we'd have to say hard things to people to keep them protected and provided for. But Jesus says, speak the truth in love. Everything. What does love require of me? 2,000 years ago, this question is what launched a movement that changed the world. 
And I believe with everything in me, this question lived out faithfully in people filled with God's spirit, asking this in great genuineness and living it out will change the world again. What does love require of you? Let's pray. Jesus, I imagine that there are people in this room right now that maybe they don't even know you. Maybe they don't know your heart. Maybe they don't know your commands, but maybe there's something that's stirred in them. Holy Spirit, I just ask that right now you would move in this place. And if you sense that there's something stirring in you and you want to respond to Jesus, I'm just gonna pray something really simple. But if this expresses the desire of your heart, I just wanna ask you, in the quietness of your heart, pray this along with me and bow your knee to Jesus as your king. Jesus, we need you. Thank you that you came to this earth. Thank you that you lived a sinless life. Thank you that you were the example of what it means to love. And thank you that when you looked at that question, what does love require of you? You looked at the lostness of humanity and you went to a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. You lived the life that we should have lived and you died the death that we deserve to die in our place. But Jesus, we just say thank you to you today and we surrender our life to you. We say, Jesus, you're our king. We wanna be with you for all of this life and for all of eternity. And it's in your powerful and resurrected name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for engaging with this content. If it was encouraging to you, we'd love for you to leave a review. Hit that subscribe button and share this content with others. We'd also love to connect with you. The best place to do that is journeyweb.net. Don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search Journey Church Bozeman and you'll find us there. If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that now at journeyweb.net slash give. Once again, thanks for engaging with Journey Church.